Well, it is a blessing to have everyone here this morning as we worship and celebrate God's faithfulness and His goodness. And uh, actually, it is also a privilege to be able to uh, just be in the house of the Lord, to be able to, um, to know that He loves us enough that He would give us a Sunday without rain in the morning. So it seems like every Sunday, that's what we get is rain, and it's a blessing. I know we're going to get it later today, but at least for today, we got a little bit of a reprieve. Um, let's start with the, the pink elephant in the room. Some of you saw on Facebook this week, I got something that I was dreading. Um, and I was told years ago that it would happen when I turned 40, and I am 45 already, so uh, it was kind of a, a big deal for me, but... Um, I got glasses, and it was, uh, it was not really what I wanted to, to have to do. Um, I don't have to wear them all the time. Actually, they're typically for distance for me. Uh, however, the doctor has recommended that I try to wear them at least as much as possible for the first week or so, just so I can get used to them. That being said, I am not wearing them while I preach. That was more just for you to see them. Uh, part of the reason for that is, man, they have thrown me for a loop. Um, I have troubles with my depth perception when I put them on. Um, I had to reach for my door handle three times yesterday on the truck just to be able to get in the truck. Um, when I look down at the ground in front of me, it really looks like I'm about three and a half feet tall. And I know that I'm not, but there's just this part of me and it throws everything off. And I can actually see what's on my little tablet here without having to uh, necessarily wear them. So I'm not going to wear them this morning. Um, but it is valuable to be able to uh, to have those glasses. They do throw things off. I think of the, the car mirror, your side view mirrors, they have the little message on it that says objects, objects in mirror may be closer than they appear. Uh, in my case, it's the opposite. They may be further away than, than they appear. Um, it has been very humbling, um, and I just have to keep reminding myself that things may not be exactly what they seem. Anyways, you won't see these every Sunday. In fact, you might never see them again on a Sunday. I just want you all to know that. Well, in a little more than a month, I will celebrate my 23rd wedding anniversary. I am mentioning that now, so I will make sure to remember and I don't forget. Um, I was 22 when we got married, which means that I will have spent over half of my life as a happily married man. Anniversaries can be an incredible blessing, but they can also be something entirely different. For example, when I go to buy something for my wife, I have to consider so many different things. Of course, there's never any danger in husbands buying clothing for their wives. Uh, thank you, John. I appreciate your laughter there. For me, I would be content to, buy, to get some kind of power tool that I could use around the house. If my wife wanted to get me something like that, I would be very happy. But can you imagine me buying a power tool, you know, like an electric sweeper for Linda around the house? Um, she might not look at it the same way that I would. And although I may have good intentions, the results would not be what I would hope for. Um, I heard the story of another individual who had a different problem with his anniversary. He forgot it. And when he forgot it, his wife was furious and she told him that um, the only way you can make up for that would be for you to 
have something that goes from zero to 200 in just a matter of seconds sitting in the driveway when I wake up the next morning. When she got up the next morning, he was already gone to work, but she looked outside and there was this box sitting in the driveway. So she went out to check it out and it was a scale. (laughs) Not exactly what she was expecting. Um, His funeral will be held on Thursday. We see in a passage this morning, in our passage this morning, an example of people getting exactly what they hoped for, but not getting exactly what they expected. If you would, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 5. We're only going to look at a few verses. We'll start in verse 18. I had Richard read from verse 24 earlier, and I'll read just a couple of verses, and then we'll talk about it some, and then we'll go back to the the passage. We're going to start in Amos chapter 5, verse 18 to 20, and this is what it says. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray ray of brightness." Recently, I preached on the day of the Lord. I talked about it as a day of great celebration, yet at the same time also being a day of great tragedy. For those who are in Christ, it is a day to rejoice over. It ought to be something that we wait for in anticipation, longing for that day, hoping for the day that God will put an end to the things that have happened in this world. Consider all of the promises that God offers regarding what we'll see. I picked out a few verses of Scripture just to identify some of the things we have to look forward to. Colossians 3, verse 1 through 4 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words, we will be in his presence for all eternity. What an incredible blessing that sounds like to us. In Revelation 7, verse 16 to 17, it says, Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And its appearance will be spectacular. What will heaven actually look like? Consider the beauty, just some of the things that the scriptures reveal. There is a river, clear as crystal. It will flow from the throne of God and of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, down the middle of the city. On each side of the river, there will be a tree of life, yielding 12 kinds of fruit every month. The streets will be of pure gold, like transparent glass. The walls of the city will be adorned with every kind of jewel. 
emerald, onyx, amethyst, topaz, whatever you can think of. There will be no need for a sun or moon, no need for a temple or a church, for the presence of the Lord will be there, it will be its light. However, the real beauty of heaven is this. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Behold, I am making everything new. We have something great to look forward to. There is no doubt that the day of the Lord will be a great day as it ushers us into the presence of God for all eternity. But wait, what if what we seek is not truly what we think it is, what we expect it to be? Jason Crabb sings a song entitled, Living Life Upside Down. The chorus of that song simply says, What if we fall into the bottom of a well? thinking we've risen to the top of a mountain? What if we're knocking at the gates of hell, thinking we are heaven-bound? And I wonder if that is not the story for many who attend church faithfully every single Sunday. Now, I've been a part of far too many funerals where individuals will make declarations like this. He was such a good man. And because of that, I know he's in heaven today. She would have done anything for anybody. She would have given her shirt off her back if it was going to help somebody. Surely she is in the presence of the Lord now. I hate to burst anyone's bubble here, but if we're counting on our goodness to get us into heaven, then we are on very dangerous ground. If we are counting on our goodness leading up to the day of the Lord, then the day of the Lord may not be what you expect it to be. I know that God's grace is much bigger than mine, which means that I will likely be surprised at whom God would allow to enter into heaven. But I also know that the only hope of salvation for any of us is not found in our goodness, but it is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is because he gave his life, shed his blood for you and for me, offering us the opportunity to be forgiven and to be made whole and to be brought into that right relationship with him. In other words, if you are looking forward to the day of the Lord simply because you have lived a good life or you've done some good things in your life, you might be surprised when that day comes. It might not be what you expected. Others look forward to the day of the Lord not depending on their own goodness, but rather they are dependent upon a misunderstood type of goodness from God. Don't get me wrong, God is absolutely good. In fact, he is basically the epitome of what goodness is about. But there is this idea that if God is truly good, then he'll never send men and women to a place like hell. As such, he'll simply 
make everything right. And if this is true, then there is no possibility that any of us should ever have to worry about hell. I've actually had people tell me that although they believe in heaven as a real place that the scriptures have talked about, they believe that heaven is real, they will declare that hell is not. I have heard them explain that it is simply something that is intended to scare people into goodness. I guess it is easier to accept the things that we like, like heaven, and to dismiss the things that we dislike, like hell. I've also heard false preachers suggest that everyone will get into heaven too. But in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. The reality is, heaven is a real place. It's something that we have to look forward to as those who are in Christ, but also don't misunderstand, hell is also a real place. It is a place of horrible destruction. In fact, that's the term that's used there in the passage I just read. It's called destruction, but it's called other things as well. Sometimes when we talk about hell, we see it as suffering and darkness On multiple occasions, Jesus uses the phrase gnashing of teeth. In other words, great suffering and pain, unending pain. It's described as a lake of fire. It is described as being a place of separation between us and God. Oh, how I seek the judgment of God. But I want to make sure that I am ready when the day of the Lord does come. Don't you want the same thing? Then we read about God's thoughts on the good and the religious things that mankind was offering in Amos 5, verses 21 to 23. Remember, they're they're seeking the day of the Lord. They assume that when it comes, it's going to be a great day for them because we are God's people. God will come and he will pass his judgment and others will pay for what they've done, but we will be rewarded. Look at what he says in Amos 5, verse 21. I hate... I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. You know, we live in a very, very religious culture. I was at Southern Wesleyan yesterday, and uh, President Voss was welcoming all of the new students that are going to be starting in the fall. And as a part of his presentation, he brought up something that I had not heard before. He said that this upcoming generation is the first generation in about five decades 
that will actually bring an increased dependence upon religion and faith. In other words, each generation for the past five decades has been slowly moving just a little bit further away from our dependence on religion, our, uh, our focus on a God. As Christians, we hear that and we immediately think that perhaps the highest days of the church lie right in front of us. Perhaps revival is about to sweep across our land. And certainly that could be true. But not unless something drastic changes. You see, the statistic that he was looking at was accurate, but it is a little bit misleading. George Barna recently declared that this generation is the first truly post-Christian generation in America. His statistics reveal that although we are a more religious culture, fewer and fewer young people are believing in Christ as the only way to salvation. In fact, before you start throwing rocks at this next generation, consider the fact that they did not create the mess that we are currently in. Barna goes on to state that statistically speaking, that only 9% of Americans actually have what would be considered a biblical worldview. 9%. That's not just 9% of our young people. 91% of Americans do not look, as, look at the world through the lens of Christianity. Oh, they, they may have pieces of it. For example, they may believe that there's a heaven, but there's no hell. Well, the problem is the Bible actually tells us there is. They may believe that Jesus is the way to salvation, but they may also believe that there are other ways, and it really doesn't matter which way that you take. There are many different views upon our world, but there is only one biblical worldview. And it must line up with the scriptures as God has given them to us. Again, we may be a more religious, more spiritual people, but that doesn't necessarily please the Lord. How does this show up in the church? How many times have we given an offering, but almost with a sense of resentment? Ah, oh, here they come again. They just want my money. That's what I'm here for. I could do all kinds of other things with the money that, that I have here, but I'll give it to the church. How many times have we served, but only because we had to? Because someone called you and asked you to, and you, know, you couldn't think fast enough to get out of it. You couldn't come up with an excuse to keep from doing it. What about our music? Be careful on this one. I think sometimes we want to say, amen, pastor, now you're getting where we want to talk. Be careful not to say it too quickly here. The passage says that God will not listen to the music. What kind of music? I will not listen to the music of your harps. The harp is a very traditional instrument that even David used in worship of God. But even the traditional music became detestable to God. Not because of the instrument or the style of the music, but because of the heart behind the music. How many times have you sung a song in church 
praising God with your lips, yet living ungodly the moment you walk out the doors of the church? Or how many times have you sung a hymn or a modern worship song and had a complaining spirit because of the type of music that we were singing? The passage says that such music, such quote-unquote worship, becomes nothing more than noise. And God wants nothing to do with it. It's because what you're doing simply doesn't match up with the heart. You can walk through all the religious rituals of church, but if your heart is not where it needs to be, then it really doesn't matter what the ritual looked like. It doesn't matter how loud you sang. It doesn't matter how beautiful your voice may be. If your heart is not where it needs to be, then it doesn't matter. People of Israel, they were, work, they were walking through the law. This is how you worship. This is what you must do. These are the things that your forefathers have done. This is how you worship. They were keeping this list, but their hearts were not right. And therefore, God says it's nothing but noise. So God gives a response to them in verse 24. And within this response, we also see a remedy for the body of Christ. It's very simple. He says, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. What he's saying here is simply this. You want justice? Good. I'll give you justice. But I require righteousness. But not your righteousness. Remember that your goodness is not enough to get you into heaven. We talked about that at the beginning today. He requires righteousness, but it must be his righteousness. Living according to his standard and living within his power. He is the one through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you who will allow you to live in such a way that you truly will honor him. And when the day of the Lord comes, then you can be ready. God's righteousness is so much more than the righteousness of this world. In essence, it is everything that is filled with purity and integrity. There are two ways that this is incredibly important. The first is best illustrated at the anointing of David to serve as the next king of Israel. At the leading of God, the prophet named Samuel shows up at David's house. David is out working in the yard and Samuel shows up and he tells his father that one of your sons will be anointed the next king of Israel. So the father begins to bring each son in front of Samuel. As they come up, Samuel is wowed by what he sees. I mean, you're talking about some really good-looking, strong, tall guys that everyone else would look at and think, that's the kind of leader I want to follow. That's the individual who could really be a warrior, and I want to follow that kind of man. <laughs> Yet in 1 Samuel 16, 7, we read God's response to Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, 
but the Lord looks at the heart. Did you hear that? The Lord looks at the heart. By the way, I've often thought about this passage and it never clicked until this week how accurate God was with Samuel, which we, we know David becomes an incredible man of God and he becomes the leader that the people of Israel needed. But there's a story that takes place down the road with a, a guy who's a little bit taller than David's brother. His name is Goliath. Goliath stands out and he... he, he shouts insults repeatedly to the people of Israel, insulting not only them, but even their God, challenging them, which one of you will come and fight me? And he basically says, if you can defeat me, you'll be able to defeat all of my army. You know where David's brothers were? Hiding. David comes and his goal is to bring food to his brothers, but he hears the insults and All of a sudden, something clicks. David says, what are you doing hiding? Who will go out and fight this man? And David becomes the one who will go and fight. Just because his brothers were bigger and stronger, that didn't have anything to do with who the real leader was. See, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, and God could see something different in David as opposed to his brothers. In the same way, I believe that God looks at the heart of all of us. You can have all kinds of respect from your fellow man. Other people may look up to you for the way you handle yourself. You may have skills and abilities that others are amazed at. They wish they could be like you. Yet God looks deeper. He looks at the heart. I've often heard parents who struggle with various addictive behaviors with cursing and drinking and smoking and whatever else you want to add in there. They say, well, I would never do something like that in front of my kids. And while I appreciate their intention to protect their children from seeing such behaviors, I also see a problem within that statement. You see, you may be able to fool a lot of people, but eventually the people who are closest to you they will begin to see what's really in your heart. You can look good on Sunday morning, and maybe the pastor looks at you and thinks, wow, that's a great man of God. That's a great woman of God. But the people in your home, it's not going to take long before they begin to figure out who you really are. You worry about what you're doing on the outside. Maybe you should be worrying about what's happening on the inside. The other side of this is that You may somehow fool everybody else, but you cannot expect to fool God. For God truly sees the heart. And as God looks upon your heart, He sees those who are either genuinely in love with Him, or He sees those who are playing the game, putting a mask on when they're around just the right people, and taking it off when they can. The solution is found in having a personal integrity that is the same whether you stand before God or you stand before mankind. That means being the same person when your kids come home or the pastor comes over. Being the same person when you're by yourself and there are other people around. What do you look at on the computer when nobody else is there? 
What are the things you say in your workplace that you wouldn't say around your kids? We ought to be the same people regardless of where we are because the same God is watching us every single time. When we come together, we celebrate the presence of God, but the presence of God is not tied to this building. Actually, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. He chooses to make his dwelling among his people, which means when you walk out that door, you take him with you. Kind of changes the way you talk at work when you start thinking about it that way. Maybe changes your attitude in your home when you and your husband or you and your wife are having a disagreement. How does it change things to know that God is truly there with you? We must be the same people regardless of who is watching. It means making sure that your goodness is not hinged on a list of do's and don'ts, but rather it is based on your love for God. You know, with our children, when they are young, they learn to be good based on a fear of discipline. But as they grow older, it's no longer about discipline. I will say, I think Andrew's already out there warming up for the next service. I could still whoop him if I needed to. The discipline is still an option. I don't want my son to only do what he's supposed to do because there might be a whooping coming. I want my son to do what he's supposed to do because it's the right thing to do. I want him to do what he's supposed to do because he loves his mom and dad and he wants to honor them in the way that he lives his life. I want him to do what he's supposed to do because he's already learned those lessons and he doesn't have to keep walking back down that same road over and over again. God looks at us and I believe, you know what, my goal is never to preach fear into people, but there is value in that. There's value in knowing that we will be held accountable for our actions, that God does have high expectations. And when the day of the Lord comes, there is either a yes or a no, either you are ready or you are not, one or the other. There is value in understanding that. But I want to live for God, not just because I fear that one day I might not be ready. I want to live for him because I love him. Because he loves me. This is love. This is love. An individual will lay down his life for another. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and for me. You know, I look forward to the day of Christ's return. But I don't want to be caught off guard when that day comes. I do want to make sure that I am ready. And I want you to do the same. I know, sometimes what you expect, you end up better, much better. I think of the women who went to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning expecting to find Jesus. They didn't get what they expected, but it was even better. I would imagine heaven is going to be even better than any of us could ever imagine. But I don't want to be caught unexpecting. I don't want to be not ready. Are you ready? For when that day comes. I'm not asking if you're good enough. I'm asking if your heart is right between you and God. If your heart is right. Righteousness and justice will flow. It's, it's a natural response. 
that comes from having a heart that is right with God. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, we are so grateful for your grace, and we believe today that your grace is bigger than we could ever imagine. And while we are very grateful for that, we also believe today that you have very high expectations for your people. Lord, I pray right now that every person in this room would be ready for when that day comes. Not just because we have become good people who can play the game and keep our list of do's and don'ts. Not just people who live in fear, dreading the day that we will be held accountable. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people who would fall passionately in love with you. So that justice and righteousness would flow from us because we would be people who were in love with a just and right God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be the people that you created us to be. Oh, where sin has reigned in our lives, Lord, I pray that you would remove it. Where we have brought offerings of sacrifice, where we have worshiped but with the wrong attitude. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be transformed, not just by saying the right things, but change who we are. When we come in this place, Lord, I pray that this would not be just a ritual, not just a religious exercise, but I pray that this would be an offering of love being given back to you. Lord, I pray that you would have your way in us. Lord, I pray that when that day comes, we would be looking forward with anticipation, not surprise. And if there be any surprise, let us be surprised at how good it really is. Lord, may you have your way in us today so that when that day comes, we will be ready. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I do appreciate everyone being with us this morning. The book of Amos is a, a little bit of a deep book, as in there's, there's a lot of hard messages that Amos had to offer, but within it there is also a great message of hope and a great message of promise. I hope today you walk out with that message of promise, that with a right relationship with Jesus Christ, you have a great reward that awaits you and me. Thank you for being with us this morning, and go in peace.